0: We're going to get started. Wow. That was the quickest you guys have ever responded that way. It's almost... Okay. Hey, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 10. We are continuing our journey uh, through the spread of the gospel beyond the walls of Jerusalem into Judea, which is kind of the wider region, Samaria, and ultimately we're going to see it reaching, beginning to reach the ends of the earth. Um, but we're not just doing this because we kind of arbitrarily picked a book of the Bible and said, okay, we're just going to kind of plow through this thing. Here's the reason why we're studying the book of Acts. We recognize that God has called us not only to have relationship with him, but to be his ambassadors, his witness of the Uh, of the good news that we have discovered, that we've tasted and seen. Jesus transforms lives. Jesus gives hope in the midst of a broken world. We've tasted it. And then he turns around and says, now I'm going to invite you to join me in being my ambassadors. That's what we are called to do. That is one of our common callings as Christ followers. We may have different jobs. We may work in different sectors. Some of us may be raising kids full-time. Others of us may be raising grandkids full-time. Others of us might be working in engineering or nursing or education. But all of us are ultimately his, his ambassadors of hope, his ambassadors of reconciliation, as though he is making his appeal to the world through us. And because that's our common calling, It's important for us to learn what it looks like to live as ambassadors. And we couldn't think of any place better to learn than from the early church as they kind of stumble around and trying to figure out how to be Christ's witnesses. They don't do it perfectly. And the moment we start thinking that who we're reading about are doing it the right way every time, we are going to lose their humanity and forget about the fact that these are imperfect people who are following a perfect God and representing a perfect God. And so we will even be learning as they are learning. Um, and last week, it, at this point in the narrative, we're watching as God has kind of used persecution to scatter the early church. They were like seeds stuck together in this dandelion and he scattered them into Judea and into this Samaria, kind of where the Jews would typically avoid going and, and all over the place. And Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, and one of the pillars of the early church begins to catch wind that the gospels making inroads in places like Samaria and other places, and so he leaves the, the kind of relative safety of Jerusalem, travels north into Samaria. Let's go ahead and actually throw the, the map up on the board. And I don't have a laser pointer that works on this, so instead I decided to go analog today. Yes. Um, so here's Jerusalem. It's on this spine of a mountain that you can't really see, but there's a mountain range that runs right through here, which is why every time people are like, let's go up to Jerusalem, if they're up in Galilee, which is up here, they're like, let's go up to Jerusalem because literally it's on a hill. You're always walking up to it. Here's the Dead Sea and there's this Jordan Valley that runs through this area. This region up here is Samaria. This is where the untouchables were, where people who, you know, like Christ followers didn't want to go or Jews refused to go. And that's where Peter first went. He went into Samaria, and he began to see that the gospel was making inroads there. And then he took a a hard left over to the Mediterranean Sea. Now, if you were to go right, or I guess that's left, isn't it? (laughs) Whatever. If you were to go left, you'd hit Italy and so forth. This is the big Mediterranean Sea. The last time we saw Peter, he was here in a little port town called Joppa. But our story is going to start 35 miles north, right here, in this port town called Caesarea. And what we're going to find is that God is starting something that's going to have reverberations throughout the church and continue to reverberate today. So in Acts chapter 10, we're not going to start with Peter, although he's a major part of this part of the narrative. We're going to start with a guy named Cornelius. So at Caesarea... There was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. Now, one day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. And and, and as people often respond to angels, he responded in fear. (laughs) He's like, what is it, Lord, he asked. And the angel answered your prayers and your gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before god now send men to joppa to bring back a man named simon who is called peter he is staying with simon the tanner whose house is by the sea and when the angel who spoke to him had gone cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants he told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. So, a couple of things that we learn about Cornelius in this part. First, we learn that Cornelius is a devout follower of Yahweh. Now, so he's, he's not Jewish. He's actually Roman. He's act, he, he, he is part of the... Um, he, he's a centurion in the Roman army, but... As he has been stationed in Palestine around other Jews, he has begun to respect the way that the Jews have a relationship with their God. He fears the God of Israel and fear is not something we need to be, he's not afraid of him. He more has a reverential respect for the God of Israel. And so he's begun to regularly pray to him and he's begun to respond in his faith by Giving tithes and other things and caring for the poor around him. So much so that many, many of the Jews who knew of Cornelius say, this is a good guy. So that's the one thing. And he's living in this. Can we put the map back up there? He, another thing that we learn is he's living in Caesarea. Now, when we went to Israel last year, we got a chance to go visit Caesarea. Caesarea is on the Mediterranean Sea. It was the capital of the roman occupation in the palestinian area so this was the link back to italy back to rome so it was a major port town they had this huge harbor in fact can we throw the picture up there right now they had this huge port you can see up here this is the harbor. This is a recreation. It doesn't look like this anymore. But this is the harbor area that King Herod built in order to re- you know, receive all of the ships coming from Rome. Later on in the story, when Paul is sent to Rome to go stand trial, it's out of this area, Caesarea, that he's sent. So... We've got that. It was also intended by King Herod to be an homage to all things Roman, kind of a celebration of Roman culture. And so he dumped as much Roman culture into this place as he could. He built an amphitheater here where there would be great shows. He has a hippodrome right here, kind of like when you saw Ben-Hur, the chariot races. That was taking place right in the middle of it. He had a huge wall around it. He had this port. And then this right here is King Herod's palace. It'd be pretty nice waterfront property, wouldn't it? Now, it's named Caesarea because King Herod uh, was wanting to honor his patron who gave him control over the Palestinian territory. His patron was a guy named Caesar Augustus, who was uh, at that point the Caesar over all of Rome, and so he named it Caesarea. Um, Today, we know it more as Caesarea Maritima, but this is an honor to uh, Caesar. In fact, they even had a temple that was built out To worship Caesar in. Because in their minds, in a Roman mind, the Caesar is God. The Caesar is the king of kings and lord of lords. Because of that, because this is the center of Roman occupation in the Palestinian territory, Jews had a lot of disdain for this place. They hated it. They wished it didn't exist. In their minds, it was a blight on uh, kind of the Palestinian territory. And they wished it didn't exist at all. And that's going to come in uh, to factor when, you know, we've got this guy, Cornelius, who's a Roman centurion, meaning that he is a member of the Roman army charged with the fact that his title is uh, centurion means he was over a hundred soldiers. And yet God is saying, I want you to send some men 35 miles south down to Joppa to get this guy, Simon Peter. And that's it. Go get him. Now there's a problem with that request. It's not a problem with Cornelius. It's a problem with Peter, because Cornelius is who he is—a centurion, meaning he is a, an officer in the kind of the ruling army that is occupying Israel. Peter going to his home in the heart of Roman rule in that area would be tantamount. To a Jew going to the home of a Nazi officer at the height of World War II. In other words, it's not something that any Jewish person would ever choose to do willingly. And that is why, as Cornelius responds by sending his delegation 35 miles south down to Joppa, God has to do some work. On Peter so that he will be willing to respond positively. So let's go ahead and keep reading now in verse nine about noon. The following day, as this delegation was making its way on their journey down to Joppa and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. I get that around that time. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. So as he's waiting, he's praying and he has a vision He saw heaven opened up and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. Think of like a bed sheet or something that's being let down. In that sheet, it contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. And then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Now what gives here? I mean, is Peter having this vision simply because he's hangry and, and, you know, he's just kind of like, oh, I want something to eat? Or is there something deeper The reality is this has a lot to do with the fact that God is sending a delegation from Cornelius down to him. God is working on Peter's heart, and he's doing so through this vision. Now, we might not make that connection initially, but you have to understand the Jewish mindset. The Jews recognized themselves as a people set apart by God. It was part of their national identity. And one of the ways, in fact, one of the primary ways that they set themselves apart from all of the other nations around them was through their dietary laws. We call those dietary laws kosher laws. And they were set out in the second book of their Bible, in the book of Leviticus. It lays out a ton of rules of which animals are considered clean and which animals are considered unclean? The clean animals are totally fair game for you to eat on, kill and eat, have fun. They're, they're delicious. The unclean animals, which are typically things like that have split hooves like camels and they chew their cud, um, but also things like reptiles, all reptiles were no-go. Don't eat reptiles and don't eat these certain birds. Those were considered unclean And God explains in Leviticus chapter 20, these are his words. Let's listen to to what God says to his people about why it's important for them to keep their dietary laws. He says this, I am the Lord your God who has set you apart from the nations. That word set apart means to be sanctified or holy other than them. You must therefore make a distinction between clean animals and unclean animals and between unclean and clean birds don't defile or sully yourself by any animal or bird or anything that moves along the ground, reptiles. Those I have set apart as unclean for you. Don't defile yourself. You are to be holy, set apart to me because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. So in the Jewish mindset... This was a core part of what made them God's people, what made them different from the other nations. It was something that they wore as a badge of honor that I don't eat unclean animals. And here's how it works. You've got certain animals that are clean, you eat them, no problem. You've got other animals that were considered by God and deemed by him to be unclean. If you eat those things, It will sully you it will make you ceremonially unclean which would then hinder your ability to worship god You couldn't for instance go into the temple courts when you were ceremonially unclean Because it was as if you were bringing the taint of the world in with you And so this was part and parcel of how the jews mind worked But here's the problem and this is a really really big problem They took those dietary laws that God gave them initially to set them apart from other nations. So they would begin to program their mind that, hey, I can't live like everybody else. I am intended to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, as if the way that I live my life is a beacon of hope pointing people to God. That's the way they were to live. But they took those dietary laws and they began to go beyond the scope of those laws to put those same ideas of clean and unclean onto people. Jews are set apart by God. We are clean. We are usable by God. Gentiles, which is a large designation for anybody that is not Jewish, is unclean. They are tainted and unworthy to be used by God. And this is what God is really trying to get to the root to, is how they had misused those dietary laws. It would be tantamount to this. Okay, so imagine that my youngest son, Grayson, had a bag of chips, and, and he doesn't like to ever go get a bowl and put some in the bowl, although we tell him, go put some in the bowl. His MO is he just goes, grabs the bag, and starts eating out of it, right? He'll grab a handful, he'll eat the chips in his hand, then he'll go in for another handful, even though he's got all that stuff all over it, and you know. And he pulls out, well, imagine for a moment if Grayson reached in, pulled out some chips, he was walking around with them, eating them, and then he decided, I'm full. So he goes back to the bag, and he sticks his chips in his hand back into the bag. In that moment that that happens, hypothetically, not so hypothetically, in the moment that happens, my eldest son, Ethan, flips a lid. Because in his mind, every single chip that was in my son's hand is unclean, or his favorite word, disgusting, right? And the moment that these unclean or disgusting chips were placed back in the bag of clean and non-disgusting chips, the whole bag was defiled it became unclean simply through the proximity of the unclean chips with the clean. You following me? Makes sense. Totally makes sense. And I can understand why he would go, that's gross. Grayson's the kind of kid who likes to triple dip and quadruple dip stuff, right? Ethan's the kind of kid who goes, that's just not kosher. Hey there, there's a step there. Okay. (laughs) But I wanted to come down by you anyway, Cheryl, how are you? So good to see you. I love you too. So that's one thing is is wanting to kind of keep certain clean things unclean. But imagine if Ethan went beyond simply saying the bag of chips is disgusting. Imagine if he then took it one step further and he starts pointing at Grayson and saying, you're disgusting. Now I'm saying this hypothetically because no older brother would ever say that of a younger brother, right? (laughs) Siblings never treat one another this way, but imagine if he did. Now we have taken this designation of clean and unclean, and we have taken it into a far darker, far more personal way. And quite honestly, it becomes destructive because it begins to shape the way that one person's mind looks at another person. And we start developing prejudice. And this is exactly what had happened between the Jews and the Gentiles. God said, I'm setting you apart to be a holy people set apart for me. The way you live will be a testimony, a beacon of hope pointing other people to me. But instead, they had taken those kosher laws and they'd expanded upon them to the point where they started pointing at people and saying, You are unclean. You are disgusting. You are unusable by God. And therefore, we want nothing to do with you. And this is why God brings up this sheet and when it falls down, it's full. You'll notice that it was full of both clean and unclean animals. All of them are kind of mixed together in there. The unclean chips with the clean chips, they're all in the same bag at this point. And then he says, Peter, kill and eat. And so it's understandable why Peter would go, oh, no, 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 no. I've never done that. My identity as your follower is somebody who is honoring you does that's disgusting to me to even consider that i would kill something that is considered by you to be unclean but look at the way that god responds to peter here i love it in verse 15 this vo- voice spoke do not call anything impure or unclean that god has made clean peter You have gone beyond your understanding and you have begun to designate people as unclean that I've never called unclean. And by that, he's not saying that they are holy to him. He's simply saying that they are not beyond redemption themselves, that they too are his image bearers. So don't write people off. Don't allow your prejudices to blind you from what I might want to do in their lives. And don't allow your prejudices to become a wall that hinders you from being able to interact with and be used by me to them. And God doesn't give him this vision once. He gives it to him three times. Now, that's really important in a Jewish mindset because Jews, when they were writing, they didn't have things like italics or exclamation points. In fact, they didn't have punctuation at all, which I'm sure Grayson would really appreciate because he doesn't understand punctuation yet at all either. So in order to enunciate something in order to let people know this is really important just a second better in order to let people know this is super important don't miss it in hebrew and in greek they would simply repeat it so we 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 come apart places like holy 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 is the Lord God Almighty, right? Why do they repeat it three times? We got it the first time. It's because they are enunciating it. This is important. The Lord God is holy. He's set apart. He's not like anything else. Recognize that. Reverentially respect him. And in the same way, God is working overtime to make sure that Peter gets this. This isn't just important. This is of utmost importance. Sorry, everybody. We're playing. We'll try this again. Are you tracking with me? Even if you're not, say yes. Thank you. Appreciate it. (laughs) Whatever. So, so God is saying, Peter, get this. Now, as Peter is still thinking about this, because this must have absolutely flipped his lid something that he has held so deeply, that is so deeply ingrained in him. I mean, his view of the kosher laws are almost as deep as his prejudicial views of people who are not Jewish themselves. And God is trying to dig this one out, so he starts here. This becomes a means to an end, and the end is, don't call food that I've made clean, unclean. And now he's saying, no, 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 don't call people that I have made in my image unclean and unusable by me. Because I can and plan to use them just as much as I can and plan to use you. So while Peter, this is verse 19, while Peter was still thinking about this vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs and don't hesitate to go with them. For I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the man, hey, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? God bless you. The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. And a holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. When Peter heard this, he invited the men into the house to be his guests, which is a really good first step. Hey, come on in, because remember, Jews didn't associate with Gentiles. They didn't break bread with them. So this is a huge step in and of itself. But we keep reading. The next day... Peter started out with them and some of the believers from Joppa went along. So they make that, they begin to make that 35 mile journey north. It's not just Peter going with the delegation of three from Cornelius. There's six other Jewish Christ followers who are walking with him because oftentimes we see this. Christ followers didn't tend to do anything by themselves. They quite often went with several others so that there would be other witnesses who could who could kind of corroborate. And if they saw something, they could kind of speak into it and all that kind of stuff. Now, a little bit of an interesting detail that I don't want to miss here before we move on is the fact that I don't think it's a coincidence that Peter starts out from Joppa. Even though it's just we haven't really read about it in Acts before. Joppa is a really important port town that comes up in the Old Testament. It came up when this guy Jonah, who's a prophet, is told by God, Jonah, I want you to go to the city of Nineveh, this pagan city, this place where they kill children and sacrifice to their pagan gods. I want you to go there and I want you to preach a gospel of repentance because if they don't repent, I am going to wipe them off the face of the earth. And Jonah hears that and he goes, oh, no, 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 no. I have no desire to see them repent. And so he goes to this port town of Joppa and he gets on a boat that's going in the opposite direction. Because for Jonah, his prejudices were far stronger than his reverential respect of what God was asking him to do. So he obeyed his prejudices instead of his God. Now Peter finds himself in the same port town. And God is asking him to lay down his prejudices so that God can use him to do something new and to redeem a people that were considered, in his mind, unredeemable. And thankfully, Peter's trust and obedience to God, his fear of the Lord, outweighs his preconceived prejudices, and so he willingly goes. Let's keep reading in verse 24. The following day, it took it took quite a while for them to get up to Caesarea. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. Now, if you have a Bible and you're interested, underline that word relatives and close friends. Or mentally underline it. This is a crucial word. It's it's translated relatives and close friends in our NIV Bibles. But this is a single word in Greek. It's a word that we might be familiar with. It's a word oikos. Some of you are going, isn't there yogurt named that? Yes, same word, oikos. Oikos means a person's sphere of influence. So for Cornelius, his sphere of influence was the people that were part of his community, his household, and kind of extended friendships. When we use the term sphere of influence, it is drawing directly from here. This whole conversation we've been having since January about being invested in our sphere of influence is based in large part off of this concept of somebody's household, the people that God has placed around them. And when we talk about our sphere of influence, this can be neighbors who live in close proximity. It can be our friends or our family members, whether it be people living in our own home or extended family. It can be co-workers or classmates. Or it could be people that you see at the park or see at the gym or see at the supermarket that you frequent regularly. Your sphere of influence is a God-given group of individuals. We we use the term 8 to 15. It's It's a little bit arbitrary, but we found that it's pretty consistent that all of us have 8 to 15 people that God has placed into proximity to us, that our lives are regularly bumping into, that we're regularly interacting with, so our lives are influencing them for better or for worse. And like these light bulbs, our lives get to shed light that help direct people towards God, or in some instances, if we're not intentional, it can maybe direct them away. I don't want to be anything like that person. I will never believe the same things they do, right? We have the potential... To really damage people's perceptions of God in our oikos, or in our sphere of influence. Well, Cornelius, he too has an oikos, or a sphere of influence. And his is comprised of his family that lives with him, and maybe some extended family that are there in Caesarea. His servants, the people that work in his home, as well as his closest associate uh soldiers right because this is a man who is over a group of 300 he's got some other soldiers that are his attendants one of his soldiers he actually sent down to joppa to bring peter back he and several of those other soldiers would have been in the room that night when peter shows up and what i love is he's brought them all together so that they can hear whatever it is that peter has to share so the following day when Peter arrived, Cornelius was expecting them, and he had called together his oikos, his relatives and close friends. And as Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. <laughs> and Peter, Peter made him get up and said, Stand up, I'm only a man myself, don't worship me. I'm not the focus. And while talking with him, Peter went inside, and he found a large gathering of people, Cornelius's oikos, his sphere of influence. He said to them, Well, you guys are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate or visit a Gentile. Now, this made me think, what law are you talking about, Peter? And I started searching through the Mosaic laws. There is no Mosaic law that says it is illegal for a Jew to associate with or eat with a Gentile. Now, the closest thing we get to it is God warning the Israelites when they're going into the promised land not to intermarry with the pagan people around them, not because they are irredeemable, but because they have their own gods, their own customs, their own laws, and God is trying to preserve this fledgling seedling of a a, a nation that is going to be a beacon of hope. And he's saying, hey, don't do that because they'll lead you astray, which is pretty much what ended up happening. So there is that injunction about don't intermarry, but that's not what Peter's referring to. What Peter is referring to is how the Jews had extrapolated from the clean and unclean kosher laws that people were unclean, Gentiles were unclean, and therefore it had become social custom that we do not associate with or eat with Gentiles. And that's what he's referring to here. And what God has been working on his heart about is that he is not called to submit to the social custom around him in the way that he treats people. Rather, he is called to submit to the attitude of Jesus Christ. And remember, Jesus got in a ton of trouble from the religious elite. Jesus was regularly flaunting what they considered to be the law because he would he would he would he would eat with sinners and tax collectors. Ironically, the tax collectors are worse than the sinners in their minds, right? Not a lot has changed in our culture. Um, but he was regularly getting like, his the, the, the Pharisees would come up to Jesus' disciples and go, why on earth does he do this? Doesn't he know that this is just disgusting? But Jesus goes, hey, listen, it's not the, the healthy that need a doctor, it's the sick. And I have come to help the sick. Or he at one point, there was a prostitute that came and washed his feet with her tears. And the Pharisees are like, why on earth? Doesn't he know who this woman is? Doesn't he know what this woman does? And Jesus is like, my gosh, she's honoring me in a way that you guys never do. And I think one of the most powerful examples of Jesus flaunting clean and unclean laws is when there's a guy who is a leper, he has a skin disease that literally, according to Mosaic law, makes him ceremonially unclean. He would not have been welcomed onto the temple mount to worship God. And as Jesus is walking alongside, this guy cries out to Jesus, have mercy on me. And Jesus moves towards this man. And he easily could have spoken a word of healing over him, but instead he reaches out and he touches this man. He says, be clean. Be healed. Be healed. And I think even more powerful than this man's skin disease being healed is the fact that in Jesus' touch, he was healing a part of him that had begun to feel like he was inhuman and unacceptable, that he was unclean, he was disgusting. And Jesus got in tons of trouble from the religious elite because he disregarded what they considered to be the law, the heart of God. And he said, no, 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 you completely missed the heart of God. And what God is doing in Peter through this section is soul surgery. He's he's heart surgery. He's beginning to strip away the calluses of prejudice from Peter's heart so he can see the Gentiles the way God sees them. So Peter says in verse 28, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. That we have overstepped when we have begun to point the finger and say, disgusting, unusable. Now, here's what he is not saying. He is not suggesting that because Jesus came to earth and died for people's sins, that everybody is automatically cleansed, sin is no more, and it doesn't matter what anybody does, everybody is now clean. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is that the foundation of our relationship with God has now fundamentally changed. It used to be, back in the old covenant, when it was about following the law, it used to be that Jews were set apart by God to be a holy nation. They had to adhere to certain rules, and there's a whole lot of them. The Ten Commandments is just the beginning. And all of these kosher laws, and these are the things that they do to set themselves apart. And the people who disregard them, the people who were raised as not Jewish, are kind of outside looking in. And they're like a light that is a beacon of hope to the world. But once Jesus is sent, there's a new covenant that's established in his blood on the cross. And now, all of those old dividing lines are abolished. There's no longer Jew and Gentile slave or freedman. Everybody is on equal footing and everybody has the ability to be restored back into relationship with God through faith. So it's a leveling of the playing field. We're going to be playing with that concept a whole lot more as we continue through the book of Acts. We're going to talk about it a whole lot more next weekend. So please, let's just go ahead and table that for now. But it's important for us to get that God is doing some big kind of seismic shifting going on here. And he's starting with Peter, one of the heads, one of the pillars of the early church. But it's going to have long lasting. And by the way, as a, as a Gentile myself, as somebody who was not raised Jewish, and I would imagine most of us in here, not necessarily all, all of you because I know Frankie, rock on baby. But, but some, most of us are Gentile. We have more in common in the way we were raised and more in common with our pedigree as Cornelius as opposed to Peter. And so I'm grateful for what God is saying to Peter here because it's talking about us. And there's hope that God can use people like us too. So God has shown me not to call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. So may I now ask why you sent for me? What did you want? And Cornelius answered, well, three days ago I was in my house. I was praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me. And he said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer He's remembered your gifts to the poor. So send to Joppa for Simon, who's called Peter. He's a guest at the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now, we're all here. Me and my whole oikos are here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord of God has commanded you to tell us. We're going to stop here this week. We're going to get into Peter responding and the gospel message next week. But I just, there's one thing that strikes me in all of this. And that is Cornelius obeyed God. And not only obeyed God in sending for Peter, but Cornelius responded by bringing his whole sphere of influence together, even though he didn't know what Peter was going to say to him. He's never met Peter. He has no idea what message Peter's going to be bringing from God. All he knows is this message is from God to him. He wants to hear it, but he doesn't just want to hear it himself. He wants everybody in his sphere of influence to hear it the same thing. And this challenges me. Because what I recognize is my tendency is that I don't want to invite other people in my life into a conversation until I've worked through the conversation. Right? Right? I want to have the answers before I ask the questions. That's how I've always operated life group is I kind of know what I'm, I would say. And then I ask a question that I already kind of know the answer to. But that's really safe. It's a lot less safe. When you ask a question and you don't know how you feel or you don't know the answer. And what I love about Cornelius and I truly respect about him is that he's willing To not only ask those questions, but he's willing to ask those questions with everybody that is being influenced by him. His family members, his servants, his uh, fellow soldiers that are under his command. He's willing to be in process as they are in process. And it makes me begin to think about these these cards that we started handing out at the beginning of the year. And if you have yours, would you pull it out? And if you don't have one, I put a few extra in the seat backs in front of you so that you guys can reference these things. I just want to talk really briefly. We have spent a large amount of time talking about the first two steps of our sphere of influence cards. Step one is simply to identify the 8 to 15 people that God has placed in our sphere of influence. Step two is to begin to pray for them on a regular basis basis by name because that prayer begins to change the way we think about them it begins to change our availability but i think that cornelius really models the last three steps for us in a way that's extremely important for us to get step three is that we would simply begin to invest our lives into those individuals that god has placed us in proximity to the word that comes to mind is that we would be interruptible right cuz we're all busy we've all got lots of places we need to be but when you're walking along the street like i do with my dog i'm on my way to harper park or my, i'm on my way back home and i've got stuff to do but when i see one of my neighbors like tom sitting out in front of his house or or you know mike with big guy uh, you know on the other side of the street i'm finding myself stopping a whole lot more than i used to i'm interruptible And there are conversations that take place out of that. Or this week was a great example. I've got a little brother, Tyler, who is part of my sphere of influence. And I will confess that he's 12 years younger than me. And so I've always kind of been the big brother that's always running at stuff. And I'm just not all that available to him. And whenever we do hang out, it's always kind of like we're we're superficial. That's just kind of how we had it modeled for us and how we have operated in our family. I may be able to go deep with some of you when we're, we're talking. But in our family, we tend to stay pretty superficial, surface level. Kathy reminds me all the time. She's like, you know, you can go deep with me too, hon. It's like, I'm trying, but I don't know how. That's another conversation. (laughs) My little brother texts me this week. Hey, can can we grab lunch? And typically I'd be like, man, this week is crazy. We're having our flooring replaced. I'm just running a million miles a minute. But I just felt prompted to pause, to be interruptible. We went out to lunch. And I really felt compelled that I needed to not talk like I normally do, not try to fix whatever it was he wanted to talk about, but simply to listen and let him process. That I, as his big brother, could be a sounding board that is safe for him to be in process with. And it was beautiful. And quite honestly, both of us acknowledge this is probably the deepest conversation we've ever had, which quite honestly is sad to me. But at the same time, I'm hopeful. Because this conversation that we have been in is beginning to to change the way that I interact with my own family. So step three is being interruptible and being willing for those along-the-way conversations that happen. But step four is the one I think that Cornelius truly exemplifies for all of us. And that is an invitational sort of life. This says, hey, walk with me. Let's Let's do life together. Let's reason together. Let's explore our faith journey together. And that looks like as you're going, inviting people to walk with you. The very first thing that God recognized that wasn't good and in creation was that we were trying to do life on our own. That, we, that, 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 that humanity was alone. That Adam was alone. And he said, it's not good. Because I, I God, am in community in and of myself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I have made them in my image. They need to be in community with others. As they're journeying. And by the way, that's why we place such a huge emphasis in our church on life groups. I would say if you had to choose between coming on Sunday morning or a midweek life group, I'd say life group is more important. Because this is more of a monologue. As much as it's kind of, you know, I I don't want it to be. This is more of a monologue. That's a dialogue. And that's where, you know, I always call life groups kind of like a, a rock tumbler where we come in with the imperfections and and, and jagged edges, and as God begins to just kind of turn us and we bump up against one another and our ideas glance off of other people's ideas and, and chipped away, we are polished into the image of God. We become better reflections of the image of God because of our proximity to one another. So if you're not in a life group currently, as both your pastor but also as somebody who's on journey, who has recognized, tasted, and seen how transformational life is when you do life with others, I implore you, and any other really big superlative word that means do it, get plugged into a life group. And how do you do that? In your seat back in front of you is a connection card, and on that connection card is a little box that says life group. Check the box, write down your name, and give us your contact information, and we will get you plugged into a life group because it's that stinking important. But we also recognize that there are people who are not part of a life group, that people who would never consider stepping foot into a church on a Sunday morning, who are walking alongside of us, who are being influenced by us, kind of like Cornelius' household, his oikos, his sphere of influence. We all have one. And the invitation for us, the reminder for us is invite people to walk with you. And sometimes that looks like... You joining them in the conversations that they're having. Just being a place where they can process stuff. And sometimes it looks like you being willing to invite people into the conversations you're having. But here's where the rub comes. We're all in process. From Merv and Darlene, Diane and Byron, all the way down to those of you who are just entertaining this idea of Jesus being real and Jesus being Lord of my life, I'm not really sure what that means. All of us are in process. All of us are in a journey of being set apart by God. And that means that you don't have all the answers. And if you resist inviting other people to walk with you, if you resist inviting other people into the spiritual conversations you're having, and, and a spiritual conversation can be about things like, how do I feel that they're thinking about moving people with the coronavirus into Costa Mesa? How do I feel about that? That was a conversation we had on Wednesday morning during prayer. How do we feel about that? There's, you know, there's a part of me that says, keep them as far away as possible. And there's another part of me that goes, but hasn't the church always been the kind of people who embraces people who are hurting? What do I do with this? Because this is jarring and I, I, I'm uncomfortable to even bring it up because quite honestly, I don't know how I feel. I don't know how I I should feel. It's okay to invite other people into a conversation. But if you are going to wait until you have all the answers, and i got to warn you, you you may never invite anybody into a conversation because you may never get to a point where you feel confident. And your spiritual journey may be a very, very lonely one. And there will be times where people will ask questions that you simply don't know the answer to. And if that happens, I've, got, I've learned a really good response when I don't know the answer. I'm going to give it to you free of charge. You just say, I don't know. <laughs> it's amazing. Like, how do you feel about that? I don't know. I've really been grappling with it. Well, h- how, do you, how do you raise children that don't talk back? I don't know. I'm in process. Pray with me. Like, I honestly need to learn. What do you, you know, have you learned anything? Because we love our kids and we don't want to kill them. But sometimes I want to, right? <laughs> Hypothetically speaking, okay? Don't call CPS on me. Um, and if somebody raises a question you don't know the answer to, please don't feel like you have to, to make up an answer. Tell them I don't know. But use it as an opportunity. I don't know, but I want to. I want to find out too. So how about we look into our answers and, and and we'll talk next time we talk. Let's let's compare notes and then go and. Spend some time in God's word, looking maybe in your concordances, see if scripture says anything about it. Maybe listen to a podcast from somebody who has a Christian worldview that can speak into that for you. Maybe it's reaching out to somebody in your life group who's several steps further along in their own faith journey than you are and processing with it. Maybe it looks like coming in and you got that connection card in the front and say, hi, I have a question for the pastors and you write your question down or email it into us, pastor at lighthousecommunity.com. Email us your question. Jeff and I would love to grapple with you with it, but we also reserve the right to say, I don't know, because we also are in process and we don't want to pretend that we've got all the answers. But the beauty of Cornelius is he recognized that he was in process, which is why you have step five, by the way. As you're inviting people to walk alongside of you, you're going to begin to recognize, man, I have some growing I still need to do. We all do. So now you begin to reinvest yourself in continuing to grow in the Lord. And as you're doing that, invite people to walk with you, even as you're in process. I've got a couple of extra minutes, and so here's what I want to do. I want to play a short video for you of somebody sharing a story of how God has been using them to live an invitational life in our community. And you've seen this one before if you were here about a month and a half ago. But I think given the conversation that we've had today, it will help flesh out our understanding of what's really going on. So Vic, can we go ahead and play that video? So I want to invite the worship team to come forward. We're going to respond to this however you feel led. And that might be just kind of sitting there and going, God, what is it in my own heart that's kind of making me want to be resistant? Right? This this seems scary to go and, uh, you know... I don't want to get a dog. You really do. It really is the best ministry. And your dog will minister to you. But I just want want to end with a question. Can we throw it up on the board here? Here's the question I want you to consider as we go into a time of worship. Are you living an invitational life? Are you inviting the people that God has kind of sovereignly placed in your sphere of influence to walk with you? Even though you don't have all the answers, even though you are still in process, are you willing to invite people into the messiness of your life? Because I will tell you this, the last thing that the world needs is a bunch of snake oil salesmen or used car salesmen who would never drive the vehicles that they're trying to pawn off, who would never actually live out of the philosophy that they are trying to present what the world needs to see are men and women who are in process who are living messy lives who don't have it all together who sometimes get in an argument with their spouse who sometimes yell at their kids who sometimes just have a bad hair day whose houses aren't immaculate and they need to see people who are real living in a broken world have hope The last thing we need to do is pretend to have it all together. But as you are in process, are you living an invitational life? Just consider that as we spend some time worshiping our God together.